Hi, dear listeners, and welcome to Deutsche Grammophon's international podcast series. I'm Sarah Willis, and as I believe I have mentioned before, I just love podcasting with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians. My guest on today's podcast is one of the greatest singers of our time and is also one of the most sought after. When she sings, opera houses and concert halls are sold out. But during COVID times, everything went silent and singing was considered one of the most dangerous ways of spreading the virus through the aerosols. On her new album for Deutsche Grammophon, Elina Garancha presents moving tributes to the power of live performance following months of silence. It was recorded live in Salzburg in 2020 and 2021 during two incredibly COVID-strict summer festivals. I know practically all has been said about performing in COVID times, but I found this album incredibly moving and I'm so interested to talk to Alina about it. So, dear Alina Garancho, welcome to the Deutsche Grammophon International podcast series. Hi. Hi. How are you? (laughs) Where am I talking to you? Where are you right now? In my screaming room. Every of my houses has so-called screaming room where I have a piano and it's very far away from the rest of the house. And that's basically where I create my music ideas, where I train my voice and where I practice. Beautiful. Did your kids call it the screaming room? They've been introduced like that. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's a very important place in a singer's life for somewhere that they can just let rip, right? Yeah, well, I mean, my profession obviously requires yelling quite loudly. So, uh, you know, very often I've been singing in salon somewhere close to them and very often they just said, mommy, it's too loud. So, you know, I kind of said, okay, I'm just going to go and yell a little bit somewhere else. So we created a room which is kind of full of carpets and curtains and, uh, you know, books and everything to observe the loud noise that I might sometimes need to create. So, yeah, screaming room become kind of like a gag also because I'm a, you know, professional singer and calling it a screaming room or not the vocalizing room kind of seems to be making people <laughs> quite, quite enjoying it. <laughs> We horn players have a practice mute for these things, but singers don't have such the luxury to have a practice mute, I suppose. <laughs> well, I mean, I know my colleagues have been singing sometimes in a pillow in a hotel room or trying, you know, to hum. But we work with the live acoustics, obviously, and our instrument is our body. And obviously, putting anything muting on the face would kind of take the overtone um, possibilities off. So if it's possible, I never sing in a hotel or at home or when I'm at home, then really in the working room as such on the trip, I always then go and work somewhere where it's really considered to be normal to make noise. I'm surprised to hear that because I thought you all just let rip in hotel rooms. You know, we were quite jealous because we, we, someone always comes and knocks on the door with us. I know. I hate it. I mean, I'm sorry, my colleagues, but I hate every singer who sings in a hotel. Really, I do. I think it is so egoistic and so disrespectful and it literally is just no go. Not, not for me, really not. I really prefer to get up half an hour sooner or stay half an hour later. But, you know, I go to the concert hall or I go to the theatre and I order room and I really do sing there. I just, uh, no, it's a no-go. When I'm in the with my orchestra in Baden-Baden, and you know that little gangway there where the, where the two soloists, you know, the, usually the two top soloists are in, it's a, they're tiny little rooms. And I remember hearing you warm up in one of those rooms and thinking, oh my goodness, that is so loud. I don't think people realise how loud an opera singer <laughs> is when they're really close to you. 
Well, I mean, it's not for nothing that we are heard in a big stages. If you think that 2,000 people go into audience and 4,000 like in Metropolitan or or 2,600 or whatever it is in Munich, you know, or Berlin Philharmonie or even, you know, Baden-Baden Hall. I mean, it's all into thousands. And we sing without microphones, you know, without amplification. So it has to be loud. It has to be quite noisy for us to shoot over 50 or 60 people orchestra as well. So it all really is about the resonance and it has to be very pointy and it is loud. It's it's just that I don't think people realize that, you know, that of course they sit in the audience and they realize that it's got to be loud. But when you're next to you, like I imagine these love scenes, you know, when it gets really passionate and both of you are singing, you know, it's almost like those cartoons, you know, when they get blown away and you see all their face uh, being blown backwards, you know, that it really must be like that. You know, you see it can be painful. It can be painful sometimes if the resonation is really very close to the ear you hear as the, um, you know, the drum in your ear just going like and it, it becomes very unpleasant. So if you have really a good colleague, they would just, you know, kind of gently close with the hand, you know, your ear if they have ah, to the shout passionate, into you. the passionate view. They close no, your No, ah. the nice colleagues, the, ni- the nice colleagues, the nice colleagues, you know, not so one that you have to kind of figure. But I mean, recently I sang performances and it was a tenor. And in our duet, I really just had to kind of knock below, you know, his head and into his chest because otherwise it was just becoming very uncomfortable. And I guess this is how somebody would feel if you really sing into the faces. But, you know, very often you you don't really realize and never, you know, it's not for nothing that we tend to turn usually to the audience and not into the really face of somebody else. That's a really good bit of insider information. So, dear podcast listeners, when you next see a love pair, a love duet going on between two fantastic opera singers and you see one of them taking the other one's head in their hands and covering <laughs> the ears, you'll know it's not out of love, it's out of protection. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I know of colleagues who said that one of them has yelled it and the second half of the first act was completely in the mute because it's just too much. Yeah. Oh, dear. OK, but Alina, we're here to talk about your new album and you have a lot of loud singing going on in that too, but you have incredibly intimate moments. And mm. um, if I may fangirl for a moment, it really made me cry, this album, because it was such a special time. And I said in the introduction, you know, we've all heard everything there is to hear about singing for empty halls, singing with no audience, getting no applause, all the bad things about what happened in the Corona times. But I think this album is one of the best things to have come out of the Corona times. Can you tell us a little bit about how the idea even came and what it was like that very first festival in 2020? Because Salzburg was the most protected festival in the world, wasn't it, with different coloured armbands? And I mean, it was incredible. Well, I mean, thank you so much. I really am very touched for your comments on that. It, I think it was a special combination of very special and unique moments indeed. I mean, coming back after a lot of weeks and months of of being silent, seeing and feeling the live audience, you know, being able to have real musicians around you to experience the vibration of the music, of musicians' energy, of the people, everybody involved. It was really very, very special. And and particularly, you know, you have to run marathons suddenly without really being able to to practice it. You know, you run around your bed, (laughs) you run around your bed in your apartment and suddenly you go to the Olympic Stadium and you have to really chase up with uh, everything that is around it. 
But, you know, for me, it always an incredible pleasure when great orchestras and great conductors invite me to participate in their concerts. You know, it's not that I've told, you know, Christian Tillemann and, and Wiener Philharmonica, I want to do this. They said, you know, if I would be happy to join, I said, absolutely. So when they call, I always say yes. And it was really a very special experience for us, you know, Wagner was, for me, the first dive into this repertoire. Mahler, I would say, it probably is the core um, repertoire for the Wiener. So have all that combination. And, and Maestro Tielemann, who just floats with it and life experience brings, you know, a certain emotions up to it. It was very special. And I'm very happy that the people got spoken to, that they got, taught, you know, touched in a certain way because the music uh, is just absolutely incredible. Part of this album, I find, is also the little noises from the audience because you are playing for a live audience again. I mean, we've all yeah. done these concerts for no audience, like in the Berlin Phil. You remember when you were there singing Mahler 3 with us? It, I looked yes. at the date. It was February 2020. And yes. literally two weeks later, yeah. we'd closed down. Yeah. It, it was just so spooky. And when I watched it back on the digital concert hall a few weeks ago, when I knew I was going to see you today, I thought, oh, let's just see how that was. Uh, was there audience? And to see a full Philharmonie uh, at that time, I mean, it was really very special. And then right afterwards, it all closed down. And, and, and you're absolutely right. It was like running a marathon, trying to get back into shape for these things and yep. also seeing the audience. But to have the audience back, I know in 2020, they were sort of in, in blocks. They, it wasn't full, was it? No, it wasn't. I think it was like a chess mat, you know, s spread out. But knowing that the people are not there because they cannot be, not that they don't want to be, they cannot be, just compensated absolutely, you know, because those lucky who were there, they filled the whole hall, yeah. you know, in triple of energy just to be there, you know. And obviously, I mean, for everybody who goes and, and performs live, having people with the masks, it's not about the mask. It's about to having so many in the same way. You know, you have a different colors, blue and black and, and everything, but just to have that amount of people all with the masks, that's what is kind of sometimes just spooky, not the fact that we have to wear it. I mean, we are going through unique times and obviously everybody needs to think about protecting themselves. So it's not actually about the fact of wearing the mask. It's just so many together does the same thing. I just found it incredible that this recording managed to capture the moment of it being mm. such a special occasion. You know, it was, was it your first time in front of an audience again after all that? Or, uh, or in front of a big in, audience? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In, and, and obviously the pressure of it being filmed and it being on a live performance, you know, where you don't really have the warm up period. You just go there and you have to do it because in one, two rehearsals, you can't really catch up half of your silence, nearly half of the year, you know, as much as you want to train. Because adrenaline does something which no screaming room and no teacher or whatever can provide you, you know, it, it makes your breathing tremble and it makes, you know, your nerves react somehow differently. But one is grateful that those moments are captured because, you know, it's also history in a way of of what's happening in the world, you know, and to be part of it and to live it and to to show it how it is and, and to have this memory of that is kind of special, definitely something that I will remember as well. Yeah, well, I mean, thank goodness we have it <laughs> on this album. <laughs> so the Vaison Donk you did in 2020, and I must say this is something our dear friend CT, as we call him, Christian Tielemann, he's just so good at, you know, it's 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 supporting a singer, organising this accompaniment. I mean, I've played many concerts with him as an accompaniment. We're always too loud, doesn't matter what we do. But he sort of, he's such a big guy, but he sinks 
down to his knees almost to get an orchestra <laughs> choir. You know what I mean, don't you? <laughs> but he does such a wonderful job of accompanying, doesn't he? Did you feel in very good hands? Well, he loves singers. You have to be realistic. You know, not every conductor understands and love. You know, they might admire and respect it, but you have to love and you have to have that confidence and that ego, you know, given up. That at that very moment is is uh, you know necessary, and I think that particularly with the Wagner, it's in a way also life philosophy that this music is, and I think it just suits him very very much. You know, obviously he's been considered um, one of, if not the. Wagner specialist in that and his experience obviously with this music is ginormous and he transports it and he explains certain things. So I think it, it really is something that he should be continuing doing it and also showing his interpretation, his uh, philosophy of it all. And it's interesting to see, you know, that between years also he changes a little bit and with that the music interpretation lives and it just shows, you know, that every composer obviously has a certain message that you want to send and only few composers can be really understood in a certain age of your own life experience. Uh, and definitely, I think that uh, CT and the Wagner go very well at this very moment. Not only can conductors change, singers' voices change. And you've sort of changed over the years. I, I heard an interview where you're saying your Octavian days are not over, not because you don't you know, you can't see it anymore because you've done it so often and that you'd quite like to do Kundry and things like that. Yeah. And I was I was really impressed at hearing that because I must say, when I was listening, which which one was it called? It was called Steer Steer, the one in the Wesendok. You yeah. hear Brunhilde in it. At least I did, you know. Yes. I was hearing yeah. this Brunhilde voice and I was thinking, hmm, I wonder if that would be something for you. Uh, <laughs> but, it will, uh, on Sunday probably. <laughs> how, but how is that? Can you explain that to our listeners? How come a, a singer's voice, what is it about a singer's voice that changes? over the years and how come you go from lighter roles to bigger roles rather than the other way around? Yeah, it's complicated. You know, it, it's hard to explain it on, on podcasts, you know, when we have so many things to talk about. But you sometimes are born lucky as a singer and your voice can make that trip. It's maybe a little bit brutal to compare a duck and a swan. Even if they both can fly, one will never become the other one because the physics just is not there. You can try to train the duck to fly faster and maybe they're higher, but it's still going to be the duck who is trying to be a swan. And it's also in a way with the voices like that. There are voices who are born with a certain capacity, like maybe Mozart singers really, or, or Rossini singers. They have a very specific quality to sound and also vibrato to the sound, which you can maybe bend it a little bit, adjust it, but it will not be able to make the full recover, let's say, development of the voice. And I've been the lucky one because I have worked always with the teachers and I still have a teacher. I have two children and that influenced also my change, my inner world probably and my physicality because I'm tall, I have a quite wide face, long neck, you know, it, there are so many things that affect also the voice and voice production. And probably... Also, because I am very careful and I have not sung too heavy roles too soon, which means that I have not abused it too much. I still have like some kind of a power that is still left to be pulled out. And it really a lot has to do with the experience. It has to do with the training. You know, you don't become a heavy weight lifter from the day one. You have to gradually become heavier, heavier or like, you know, boxes. You don't start on a heavy weight. You know, you start slowly and then by muscles, by experience, by training, by by everything, you know, it, it, it takes time. And that's why, uh, you know, big, long careers are very only few. And very often uh, singers get boxed into the repertoire and they believe that that's only the repertoire that they should be singing, you know. 
But probably yeah, but the that, rule... that's what I love about you is that you were never boxed. And also you say this publicly. You could just say, OK, I'll do Octavian again because I know it and I don't have to work. You know, I, it just like that. But you actually push yourself to do these these newer roles. And I think that's because, fantastic. I mean, I have to be honest because I get bored. I really do get bored of repeating myself. And I feel that there is a point when I have said everything that I wanted to say in the role. I mean, you can just develop yourself that much. And when you come to the stage that you repeat everything that you have done already, it's no more fun. And I think I'm that moment, I'm not any more truthful because there is no any more this desire of researching something, you know, you say, yeah, well, I've done it this one in that production. I've done that one with that production. And, and there is just also all morals of the story. I have now starting to, to think that the Carmen, it's time to say goodbye to her because I mean, no, frankly, no, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I will undo it for some while. I will, but you know, it will not be the role that I will be singing for the next 15 years because I think that the life morals, it's not worth anymore to be so stubborn and no have any, any middle way, you know, with the age, you kind of learn that to make a compromise also can be fun. You know, because you start to negotiate and you see, and just to blindly go and trust, you know, until, you know, I just uh, I have my questions about it. So at that very moment where that overwhelms, you know, my my uh, let's say the music uh, or the request that this role has, I think it's time to move on. Well, you moved on a year later to Mala. So you had like one year between Wesendonk and Mala. And I'm sure you did all sorts of things in between. But Kundri. We went back. Kundri. You did Kundri. You, you did. You learned Kundri in between that. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite roles ever. I remember going when I was a student thinking uh, I, I was invited to go and see Parsifal and I couldn't. But there was a, a singer that I was really interested in hearing. And I, I'm a horn player. OK, I didn't know much. I was very young and I had, didn't know much about Wagner. And so I turned up to the third act because I just couldn't get there before. And I was so, <laughs> you know why, I, the listeners, I don't know if you know why, but demon, Kundry has demon. like, exactly, has that's two it. words to sing. So that's all I heard from that wonderful Kundry that night. <laughs> yeah, a bit embarrassed about that. But uh, yeah, don't, yeah, don't miss the second act if you go and hear Alina singing Kundry. <laughs> yeah, you still have to hang around and come back for the bows anyway, don't you? Well, I mean, the production that we did with Hiro Srebrenikov in Vienna, actually, she is nearly the whole third act on the stage and really goes through a lot. Singing-wise, it really is just Dean and Dean, and that's all that you say there. But from acting-wise, there is a quite a ride. Uh, and it actually is challenging because, you know, as an opera singer, you feel that, okay, now I'm going to say something and I sing and you don't. So you become like a ballet dancer who are like... <laughs> you know, and then with the legs and, and hands moving around. But uh, it's it's a beautiful music, you know, and, and you can, as a character also, you can make quite a trip through yeah. everything that goes uh, in yeah. the opera. Ah, oh, one of my favourite. Clemenestra? At some point, probably, yes. I mean, there are a couple of, of uh, elderly women, which I think uh, will come at some point, you know, but I, I think elderly for the next... women, yeah, right. For the... I, if my listeners, if the listeners could see Alina right now, they would think, what on earth is she talking about? Because she's one of the most glamorous, she looks so amazing on my screen right now. Uh, really one of the most glamorous singers that there is uh, out there right now. So yeah, you being an elderly woman, you're going to stay glamorous all your life, I think. <laughs> oh, I mean, to age with the dignity, it is... Uh, virtue nowadays, you know, to uh, what one is realistic. I mean, in my head, I'm 27. When I look at my passport, I somehow get a little bit It's confused. a shock, isn't it? I have the <laughs> same thing. 
No, but it's, I mean, I have to tell what I've said also about the Carmen. There is just times that the morals of certain characters, or let's say the desire of the life in the character doesn't correspond anymore to what you think life is about. So you look for the roles where you can, you know, question also your own dignity and your own values, you know, through roles. And obviously every role that I'm doing in the stage, it's part of me and my experiences or my compromises that I had to do. So I try to get them into the character and to understand why they react to certain places. But I mean, like like Octavian, it's not interesting anymore. The character per se, it's not any more interesting because I, I also believe that there is a certain energy that every age brings on a stage. And like the Mozart, Così Fantute, you have to have young people who fall in love during the rehearsal time with each other. They play, they hang out, they go to, you know, have drinks and stuff. And there is this vibe, this kind of a unallowed buzz between themselves. And you can feel it on the stage. If you have a, you know, life experienced people who have children and everything and then go and play Così Fantute and imagine that for the first time you fall in love, it's a bit like the... And also those people want to go home to bed. Uh, <laughs> Tell so me happy. about yeah. it. <laughs> so you had a year off. I'm deviating terribly, which is very, very naughty for an interviewer. But it's just so interesting, all the stuff you're saying. We deviated. We got to Kundry in your year between the Wesendonk and the Ruckert leader. And then you came back to Salzburg. Salzburg still was quite a protected place, wasn't it? It wasn't as protected as the year before, because the year before it was really incredibly strict. But you still had your different colour armbands, if I can just to explain to the people listening, the, the singers had a, a coloured armband. There's, there was different sort of stages of contact possibility, yeah. wasn't there? And these people couldn't go backstage. These people could go near the singers. You had people not allowed near you. Probably the horn players were not even allowed anywhere near the stage. How did that work the second year? Well, I mean, obviously, we were all tremendously impressed of how it took place to start with, you know, again, and that actually so successfully with so many events and concerts and and how actually people were desperate to be part of it all as a musician or as an artist or as an audience as well of, of, you know, taking in account everything that has to be done and actually doing it. And of course, very often it was very frustrating because there you have all the musicians and the public doing everything that's been demanded from us. And nevertheless, outside on the political side, you know, there is just so little that they do. And it all the time, the culture people who just get hit again and again and again. And in general society who uh, just have to have music and culture as a day of their well-being. You know, it, it's not just about eating physically. It's also about you know, nurturing your brain, your emotions, your mind and everything. Doesn't but Netflix it was great. do that? <laughs> well, partially it does. I mean, I have to tell you, a series of 31 minutes is a night of welcome thing because I can't have energy to sit through one and uh, a half Tell me about hour. it. It's about all I can manage. I can't imagine sitting through the whole of Parsifal now. But uh... Exactly. That's why you do the highlights. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, obviously, to be there again and, and have, uh, you know, I say that Vienna Philharmonica, I know them for so many years because we've started, when I started in Vienna in Ensemble in 2003, you know, this is how long it goes back. So have them again together and see how some of them has gone already and new faces have come in and some of them are still from that day still playing. It's, it's very emotional. You know, when the people come to you and they say that they enjoyed it very much or how, how happy they were that we can do music together. And it, it all just becomes, you know, very special experiences. And I always said... When you're on stage in an opera, it's in a way about you because you are the frontal piece that the people are looking at you. But when I sit in the orchestra, I become one of the orchestra, if I may say so, you know. So I try to integrate myself and my singing, of course, is a, is a voice. 
but you can take just so much of colors and so much vibration and experience from sitting in the orchestra. You know, you can hear how you as a group actually work, you know, and how different the sound of Wiener Philharmonica is or, or Berlin Philharmonic. You know, you feel the body weight, you feel the physicality of it differently. I love it. I, it's very, very special every time. Uh, so when the great orchestras call, I, you know, I always make an effort to be free and actually experience it. That's a real music making. That's what I say. That is what the Heilige Kunst is about. Now, without being ironic, you know, it's maybe ironic to say Heilige Kunst. Uh, no, but it holy, really, for the me, holy arts translated, the holy it's art, true. Yes, yeah. but for me, those are the moments where, you know, the time can stop sometimes. And, and in a rocket leader, the time stop in certain places because there just is that much of that music and that much of being together and in the audience come on that wave, it becomes magical and it becomes memorable, you know, and, and those are the moments when you say that this is what music making is about. Could you say that that experience of singing it after such a pandemic and knowing the audience was so hungry for live arts and to see you again and hear Lai singing, although singing is was one of the most terrible dangers of all of COVID times, of course, you and your aerosols, um, <laughs> did, did that inspire you on stage? Could you feel that? I mean, when you're standing on stage, there's always that space between the stage and the first row, you know, and that's always the part when I'm I'm presenting or doing something, that's the part I try and put away because, you know, we want to have that contact. For this Rukert leader, I mean, maybe I, I, I was just really moved by, you know, your your gekommen. I was in, in floods of tears. It was so, <laughs> so beautiful. And Thank you could you. hear rustling in the audience. Did that inspire you more being back on stage or or, or do you try not to think about it? Or do you just let you get you let yourself get away, you know, moved in the in the wave of the moment? It is a moment. It is a moment that you experience because thinking about audience at that very moment might take you away from actually oh, of course. Yeah, sinking of course. into yeah. it, you know. And the more I kind of think that I want to sing for the audience, very often I just become too nervous because, you know, <laughs> the responsibility creeps onto your neck, you know. So little mistakes or little off notes sometimes are much more worthy because they are truthful as perfectly made and concentrated sound. But, you know, Mala in general, for me, is a very interesting composer. There are a couple of songs that I still I'm just cannot get myself to sing it because I kind of superficially, superficially <laughs> think that, you know, they have a message in their life. So, you know, better to leave them a little bit out. And I also have a feeling that Mahler has such a narrow door and such a small way between now and then, you know, and after let's say, the death, if you want to call it that way, that uh, I have a lot of respect for this music. And ich bin der Welt abgegangen, oh my God, I can't even say it anymore. Ich bin der Welt, Welt abhangen, genau. It is a very special song because with the age, I believe, the realization of the life afterwards becomes less and less scary. You know, you can be melancholic about, but be positive about it. And you can be going into that song with a positive atmosphere and a positive attitude, you know. And it becomes then very simple and very enlightening, you know, very releasing. Now, maybe that was the magic also at that very moment, because it's not a sad song where you think, oh, my God, the time is over and I'm just alone there, all completely forgotten. You know, you 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 bring yourself into another level of being released of everything that 
drags you down on a daily basis. That's the moment where you become free and you can be very happy about it. So for me, that song is very, very uh, special. And it's very interesting, actually, how with the time and with the age and with the vision of the life and, and experiences of the like, actually, you understand the song better. Mala, maybe in my opinion, can sometimes be repetitive and it's like, you know, in some of the symphonies you you kind of, you go and go and go and you never arrive and then you still have another five pages and then you think, okay, now we know there is another two pages, you know. And just you're to make speaking it sure. to a horn player, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's it, it can sometimes be kitschy and made too sweet and too kind of, you know, exaggeratingly uh, melancholic. But if you kind of dig out of it and just make it pure and really very, very straightforward, it, it becomes very uh, touchy and very transparent and transcendent. Well, these songs are a perfect example of that. And you got me. You really did. <laughs> Incredibly you. beautiful, this album. And <laughs> congratulations. I mean, that there were Thank two you. live performances, which were just so, so perfect and so moving that they make a great album. And what I also like, Aline, if I can trivialize it just a tiny bit, you and Christian Tielemann have matching outfits on the cover. Did you know that? Did you realize <laughs> that? Did you, did you speak about that beforehand? <laughs> no, we didn't. But I knew from the past experiences that he never wears black, but he wears uh, dark blue. So I thought it would be a nice touch just to have a little bit of uh, that support of the color, you know, mirroring also in my costume. So it's nice. I think it, you know, they said that the blue color is the color of hope or in the, you know, in the future kind of uh, everything. Well, I have some blue at this very moment as well. The same as you, I think, no? Yeah, blue, blue for hope. <laughs> exactly. Hopeful so, podcast. Why not? <laughs> no. I mean, I love, I, uh, there's another funny story about seeing you for the first time in the Philharmonie. You walked past a table full of brass players on the way into the rehearsal and everyone was like, wow. Because you, with, with, you know, with your height and you wear beautiful clothes and your blonde hair was down and you're so tall and you walk past and it was like, Wow. And then before the concert, you walk past the same brass players and you were about five inches higher because you were wearing high heels and they were like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, you are in a very impressive erscheinung. What's that word in English? Appearance. Uh, my appearance. And, and your fans, you know, you, but, but you're so, you know, you're wonderfully approachable as well. And we, we love having you. And uh, Thank I, you. Hope, I hope you'll come back very soon. What, what's next? I mean, I, I heard that you've been singing a, a sneaky Carmen Jew with uh, Jonathan 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 Tetelman Jonathan Tetelman yeah. yeah Jonathan Tetelman um, yeah is and uh, and I I'm excited to hear that being a quite a fan girl Well he's yeah I mean he's uh, now let's say the new hope for the tenor world you know a young guy a lot of energy and a lot of excitement you know when um, not bad looking not bad looking <laughs> Tall, which is very nice for somebody like me, because, you know, even if uh, with a high heel, still, he's still long, taller than me, which is obviously nice and has that young energy, you know, uh, greedy for success and everything, which is like for the character like Don Jodé, I think it's wonderful because he has that power and that energy, you know, to, to believe also the story and to really go till the end. Yes, we did a recording and he's doing soon, I think, at some point, his presentation of his solo uh, recording. So it's it's very nice. There are a couple of the other ones also coming. Yeah, I mean, for the future, for me, I have um, a couple of productions coming up. I will do uh, Samson Dalila in uh, Royal Opera Covent Garden. I also am foreseen to go to Chicago to do Ruketlida with Maestro Muti. 
in, with the orchestra there. In Salzburg Festival, I have a wonderful two projects, again, with Maestro Tielemann of Brahms, Rhapsody, and Alter Rhapsody, and then also a concert with Samson Dalila and Parsifal in the same concert. So that's a, quite a challenge for me. Second Indeed, act, I hope. Exactly. Both of the second acts. Yes, indeed. I mean, I can't escape of not singing in the, <laughs> in the both third acts, so to say. I have to. And uh, I'm going to do Carmen in September in Vienna, probably one of the four or five last ones. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, learning something again from the Wagner. Next year, I have a beautiful project with uh, Tannhäuser, with Venus coming up and a couple of other roles, which in the next four or five years are going to be brought to the judgment and hopefully appreciation of the public. My goodness. Well, you're certainly not going to rust. In the words of Placido Domingo, if you rest, you rust. You are certainly <laughs> not going to rust. Those are amazingly exciting projects. And thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Congratulations on the album. It's very, very moving. And dear listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast with Alina and would like to hear more episodes with more of my fabulous guests, past or future, please subscribe to the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also rate us on Spotify and iTunes. So please do that. Elena, did you know you could do that? No. So many things you can do these days. Oh so get my onto, God. <laughs> yeah, I know. So get onto Spotify or iTunes and give us a rating. <laughs> it's been fantastic to talk to you and I look forward to seeing you back in Berlin as soon as you can possibly come and next Thank time, hopefully so in person. Okay? Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so Take much care. for having me. You Bravo too. for all you do. Bye-bye. Thank you. All the best. Bye. Bye.